take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. It's a tremendous psalm, and I want to just introduce it with just a couple of questions for us to ponder that I believe the psalm is going to answer for us. And the first is this, will the Christian worship God? Will a Christian worship God? Will that be a priority, a desire of the Christian life? Can one be a Christian and not worship God? What leads us to worship? What stokes the desire of worship? Does God use means in our life to encourage worship? And what are those means? Let's hear God's word, Psalm 63. You notice in the superscription, it is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Beginning in verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing with joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And this is God's word. And this evening as we look at this psalm, I want to approach it differently uh, than my normal way of going about the psalms. Normally we just divide the psalm and look at each verse and each section and then apply it, rather than, than doing that, I want to look at the, the psalm thematically and look at the psalm as a whole together this, this evening. And I, I want to start off with this point. There is in this psalm an, an implicit assurance of worship. For those that know God... Through the Lord Jesus Christ, they will worship God. This text makes it clear and assures us that those on whom the Father has given to the Son and the Son has redeemed, 
They will, in fact, worship God. It will be the desire of their heart. It will be the yearning of their soul. It will be a great desire that they have that will even be a desire that consumes them. That's the assertion of the psalm. That those that know God desire to worship God. You'll notice how it begins in verse 1 with a simple statement of relation. O God, my God. David acknowledges right from the beginning as he goes into this psalm, the one true and living God is his God. It is the God that created the universe. The only God is his God. It's a statement of relationship. It's a statement of commitment. It is a statement of knowledge of this God. And then I want you to notice in verse 11, it says, But the king shall rejoice in God. In the very next line, all who swear by him shall exult. What does that mean? Well, that's probably from Deuteronomy. Many commentators note that this is instruction from Moses in Deuteronomy 10.20 where Moses says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. So I want you to see the sandwich here. David begins by stating something of his relationship with God. Oh God, you are my God. And he concludes with, They shall swear by the Lord which is a direct, uh, direct statement from what Moses commands the people when he calls them to circumcise their heart, that they may know God, that they may fear God, and that they may swear by God. And so what we see here on the outset of this psalm is something of, for those that know God, that have a relationship with God. So if you're sitting here this evening and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, this describes what should be of the Christian life. You think about the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it describes what should be and what is true of the Christian life, though we experience the meekness and the poor in spirit and being the light of the world in varying degrees throughout our life, it still nonetheless describes what the Christian is. And as Psalm 63 begins to tell us, this is what the Christian does. All of those things that describe David can be rightly applied to the Christian life. And so there is an implicit assurance of worship here to answer the question, does the Christian worship God? Yes, can one be a Christian and not worship God? No. Worship is the response to God. It's a response to God's self-revelation. So notice how he describes this in verse 1. I shall seek you earnestly. David, it says, is in the wilderness. Describes it as being barren. He describes it as being he's in thirst. References food later, so perhaps you could say he was even hungry. 
He's not seeking relief from the wilderness. That's astounding. He's not seeking relief earnestly for water. That's not what's consuming him in the wilderness. What's consuming him is God. That's why he says, I shall, I will seek you earnestly. He goes on to describe this, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you know why we so often struggle with poetic language when we read that and we say, wow, that's really... That's really extreme, is because we import our own desires and worldly thoughts into those words. Rather than taking them for what they are, that God is his sustenance, that God is the one whom keeps him, that God is his all. That's why he can say, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. In a dry land where there is an absence of God's word, the one thing that he longs for is God's word. He longs for God himself. That idea, I want you to notice in this, where he says, I will seek after you, and then he says that his soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. I want you to see these two different ideas Almost antithetical to one another, but complementary. And the first is this. This earnestly seeking is speaking of his diligence in seeking after God. This is his effort. So you think of it like that. This is his effort. Then thirst and yearn describes his what? Desire. You see here in the text... David is saying he is putting forth effort to seek after God so that he may be with God in worship, but then at the same time, you notice what it is that is driving the effort. It's his desire for God. It's his desire. And he says that the result of this in verse 3, he says, my lips will praise you. And praise is the idea of of singing, uh, thankfully singing. It can be the idea of shouting something. But it is praise of God, of who God is, as God has revealed himself to him. So this is what he will do. He will seek after God. He will praise God. And then he goes on to say, I will, in verse 4... I will bless you as long as I live. Another way of saying, I will praise God for the rest of my life. David, right now in eternity, is praising God. His commitment to praise God in this earthly life only continues in to his eternal life. And let me just borrow from John Owen for a moment. If we don't praise God in this life, you won't praise him in the afterlife. We will continue to praise God for eternity. 
He continues to say this in verse 4 of what he will do. I will lift up my hands in your name, a sign of submission and praise that is fully engaged in worshiping God. He says in verse 5, And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Will the Christian praise God? Will the Christian worship God? Yeah, absolutely. They can't help but worship God. All of these descriptions are what David will or shall do. He is committing to worship of God according to what God deserves, what God commands, what is worthy of God, songs with thankfulness. And then at the same time, we see that he has a commitment to seek God out, driven by his desire for God. Now, I want to consider this for a second. We've answered the question, will the Christian worship God? The answer is yes. Does God use means to encourage worship? Yes. And so I want us to think about the need for contemplation, or as the text says, the need for remembering, or the need for meditation. The words remembering and meditation, or meditate, are the words of the text itself. So as we noted already, he speaks of his desire of God by saying, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. David is in the wilderness. It's described as a dry uh, land, a wilderness, where there is no water. He calls it a weary land. And so what is interesting to make note of this is David's references here, in terms of his desire of God, he's referencing the human body's greatest need. Your greatest need is water. You can survive many days, weeks, over a month without food, You can't go but about three days without water. Majority of your body is made up with water. That's our greatest need. And what he uses is the greatest need of the body to describe his desire for God. If you experience a little bit of thirst, it does not leave you until you get something to quench your thirst. Being thirsty is an abiding reality. It's something until it is quenched that stays with you. And this is what he uses to describe his desire for God. Let me ask you, do do we desire God? And do we speak like this? Not usually, do we? That's not usually the language. In fact, I think that if, if, if most people use that language, it would make people uncomfortable using it. Especially for many of the men. We don't use language like that. But yet, David, and I've made this case many times, is a man's man. It's the very language he uses 
that's sanctified by God as God's word, that he yearns for God? Do we hunger after the word of God? Isn't it an abiding desire for us, the word of God, that stays with us until it's quenched? And actually, we, we discover as we go through our life that we're never, ever fully able to quench it. It just stays there with us. Do we desire to be in communion with God? Do we desire to be in communion with God and the saints? How does David fulfill that desire, this yearning, this thirst? I want you to notice in verse 2, he tells us. He says this, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David is before the temple. He's in the time of the tabernacle. The tabernacle would have been a traveling tent where they gathered to worship God. Tabernacle was designed by God. God gave his spirit to people to build it. God described it in quite detail in the book of Exodus to look a certain way. And the tabernacle represented the center of worship for Israel had to be moved a certain way by special people. The construction of it had to be done precisely how God had told them. How a priest would approach God was specified by God. How the sacrifices would take place and what type of sacrifices and who could sacrifice was all detailed by God himself. God regulated it. God said, this is how you are to worship me. And if you don't worship me this way, they die. So what David actually references is he is referencing God's regulated worship and says, I'm looking on that. So if you ask how did an Israelite during and after Moses' time until the time of Christ, how did they gather to worship God? Well, they would gather at the tabernacle. And in the temple, as God had prescribed, they would offer sacrifices. That's revolutionary in our day and age. And let me tell you why. Because the culture of American cultural Christianity is that I can worship God any way I want, anywhere I want, anytime I want. Will the Christian worship God? We all said, yes, the Christian will worship God. Here's the question then. Will the Christian worship God according to God's appointed means for worship? That's the question. And the answer, we cannot change it. We have to stay consistent. Yes. What is the appointed means of worshiping God? amazing 
The tabernacle was to image forth the new heavens, the new earth. It was to picture a return to Eden. It was to show God's power in creation where God reveals himself. The New Testament Christian doesn't have to imagine that. Christ has ushered in a new creation. Christ himself has brought about the reality of these things. And so David expresses the idea of thirst and yearning by seeking the presence of God according to the way God prescribes worship, where God reveals himself. And David is committed to praising God. And why is that? Well, he says in verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now notice the word, because. Your steadfast love is better than life. Where does the Christian find life? In the steadfast love of the Lord. And the greatest example of that is the Father sending the Son to pay the price for our sins. But specifically here, how does David understand and know the steadfast love of the Lord? It's oftentimes the word steadfast, love, it, it can just mean God's faithfulness. How does David understand God's faithfulness. David understands God's faithfulness according to God's promise to bring about an eternal kingdom through his son, the anointed one, the Messiah. So David's understanding of God's revelation, put this together, of God's word to David is what leads him to praise. God's word leads him to sing praises. That's astounding. Again, go back to our cultural Christianity. Does does the word of God bring us to praise? Is the reading of Scripture The preaching of the word of God, does it lead us to praise? Does it enthrall us or does it make us go? It's a lot of scripture. What is our response to the word of God? It's amazing that David says that out of a result of God's revelation, he says, my lips will praise you. God reveals himself and it results in praise. Now, where does God reveal himself? Well, as Calvin said, God has two books. There's the book of nature, and that is this. It's just simply the heavens declare the glory of God. So think of this for a moment. Does the creation itself lead you to worship the creator or to worship creation? How do you contemplate walking through the mountains, 
or looking up at the night sky and seeing the stars clearly? Does that lead you to a contemplation and worship of God? Or do the things of the world actually drive us to a worship of the creation? We might think, we, get, we can get sideways on this by thinking that worshiping of creation simply means that we go and become environmentalists and tree huggers and now we're worshiping. Them. That's not necessarily, do we worship the things of this world to the point that they take over our worship and prioritize our, ourselves over our worship of God? Guess what? We're worshiping the creation rather than recognizing God's goodness in all things. But here David is specifically revealing that worship results as a, comes as a result of God's special revelation, which is God's word. Now I want you to notice something. This desire that we saw, and the effort, it leads to satisfaction. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I just, just want to point out a simple thing in verse 5 that is should be common to all of us. The fat on a steak is what makes the steak taste good. That's the reference point there. That's where we get our, the, the flavor from. And so what his picture is, in this dry and weary land where there's no water, he speaks of worshiping God and then says that his soul would be satisfied as he is satisfied with good food. He relates it to, you know what it's like to have a good meal. I don't use this in, in, to be as, as hyperbole. I never get tired of eating a good steak. It's satisfying. David ain't talking about steak. He's talking about worshiping God. Do we find satisfaction in that effort of seeking God and that desire, that yearning, and that thirsting after God. He basically says he's satisfied, and that is to have his fill of something. This comes as a result of God's special revelation. God's word to him. And it's amazing, I want you to notice this, how David uses things from everyday life, everyday experience, as an opportunity to reflect upon God. He's using the experiences that are common to all of us as an opportunity to reflect upon God and God's nature. You see the need for contemplation to remember. You see in verse 7, he begins a contemplation of his life. He says, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. What's he doing there? He's reflecting on the past, how God has rescued him, how God has helped him, how God has been with him. He's contemplating on God's providence in his life. He's reflected and contemplated according to 
things that we experience every day. Now he's looking back and contemplating God's providence in his life, God's provision, how God has rescued him many times when things seemed desperate, when things things seemed hopeless. He reflects on God and says, you've you've been my help. You've always been there for me. You've always rescued me. You've been my rock. You've been my refuge. You have been my shelter. He looks back and contemplates God's goodness. I think there's something in here is we don't know the circumstances of his wilderness of Judah. But just put it down to this as David is struggling. Do you ever struggle? Whatever the struggle may be. Then David teaches us something here about contemplation. Contemplation on God's providence in your life. How God in the past has encouraged you. How God in the past has brought comfort to you. How God in the past has worked in your life. How God in the past has filled your your soul, your heart with peace and contentment. Even when you're struggling now, that can be a means of encouragement going forward. Is God has brought me peace in the past. God has brought me comfort. I may be in a weary land right now, but I know my God. He's always been a help to me. This leads David in verse 8 to say this. My soul clings for you. I wrote in my notes, my soul is glued to God. David clings to God, but I want you to notice who it is that holds David. It's not David's ability to cling to God. Notice what he says. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He gives God credit for keeping him. David clings, but it is God who holds him. And then we see a contemplation of our enemies. In verse 9 and 10, he contemplates his enemies. He says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. It's a contemplation for the end of his enemies. That the Lord will have vengeance. Vengeance is of the Lord. And we also must remember that David was the anointed of the Lord, and those that oppressed him or opposed him were opposing the very kingdom of God. And those that oppose Christ today do so by opposing Christians. This is why Jesus says to Paul, or Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Because Saul sought to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Now he gives three refrains that will take place for them. The first is this, they will go down into the depths of the earth. That is, they, they will die. But, but the emphasis is that they're going to die facing judgment. It says they will be delivered over to the power of the sword. The sword that they yield in terrorizing 
uh, those that are part of God's kingdom will come back upon them. But the whole point is that, that they're going to face a violent death. And so David is trusting that the Lord will bring justice to the wicked. They will face judgment. And then finally he says, they will be prey for foxes or they will be the portion for jackals. In other words, what that means is that after they have faced a violent death, they'll just be simply picked apart by wild animals. That's their end, he contemplates. Those that would oppose the kingdom. But in contrast, verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. Will the Christian exult? Yeah, it says so right here. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. There's one final thing of contemplation I want to point out. We've skipped this verse until now, and that's verse 6. And, and that is this, is that contemplation, when it's uncomfortable. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, you might think, well, my bed's the most comfortable place there is. What about when you can't sleep? And you're laying in bed, tossing and turning. What is David doing while he is laying in bed? Presumably not sleeping. You read Psalm 4, read Psalm 5, where it speaks specifically of sleep being a grace of God. In those moments, I think this takes the greatest strenuous effort what's described here. I remember God. And when he says, I remember you, this is not just uh, God pops into one's mind. That idea of remembering here is an intentional thinking and setting one's mind upon God while they're in bed. And we can say this is poetic of contemplating God, meditating upon God, remembering God at all times, and I think you could certainly make that case. But I want to make the, the, the very practical, very literal understanding of this is remembering God as we lay in bed. And specifically, we have seen two ways that God is referenced in reflecting on Him, nature, as creator, and the covenant-keeping God that has made Himself known, who has made His plan of redemption known, who has revealed who He is. David, in bed, thinks about God as God has revealed Himself. So what governs David's thoughts of his contemplation of God? It's God's Word. He's not going to imagine a false God. 
And then we're not going to be told in Scripture an example of imagining a false god according to our own imagination. In other words, when we're to meditate and to think upon God, we're to actually be thinking upon God's Word. And David brings God's Word to mind. And then he says that he meditates. That is to think on God, to contemplate God at a deep level. It is to ponder the revelation of God. I just want to point out a couple places where we find this in Scripture that might, that might guide us. Joshua 1.8 The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good, excess, good success. It's, it's interesting. He doesn't say just simply to memorize the law. He doesn't just say, know the law. He takes it a step further and says, I want you to meditate upon it. I want you to think upon it. I want you to ponder its depths at all times. You see in Psalm 1, probably the clearest statement of the king, Psalm 1 verse 2, but His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law, He meditates. When? Day and night. Upon God's Word. There is a continual meditation. In Psalm 143, in verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. The other passages of meditation clearly were on God's word specifically, but this is upon God's providence and God's creation. It's incredible. Do we always desire this? Do we find this easy? Does this take work? Is it worth it? And does this contemplation, here's where I'm getting at, does this contemplation of God, is this God's means of driving us to worship? Yes. If we find a lacking of the yearning and thirsting, it's perhaps because we are not thinking and contemplating on God's Word. But the more that we draw nearer to God in His Word and contemplation of His Word, that is God's means of bringing about a greater desire of worshiping Him. And how could it not as we draw closer to God? In knowledge of His Word. Worship is the response to God's revelation. So the more that we're into revelation of God's Word and thinking upon God's Word, should it not lead us to a greater desire? 
And this is not a quest of just simply knowledge. There's a difference between meditating upon God's Word, as God calls us to do, and just simply acquiring more knowledge. You think of what Ecclesiastes said in verse 16 of chapter 1, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after wind. David is not speaking about acquiring knowledge, though we we really can't separate meditation upon God's Word from our knowledge of God's Word. This is not mere intellectual curiosity. This is to explore what God has revealed of Himself for us and our benefit. This is what is the driving force of our desire is contemplation upon God, meditation upon God. So what we've seen in this psalm, God's people will worship. Those that have called upon the name of the Lord are a worshiping people. They don't have to be convinced of worship. Scripture encourages it, exhorts it, and commands it. But the Christian is a worshiping Christian. And we do this according to God's appointed means. As Christians, we do this on the Lord's Day in a local gathering of saints under the preaching and direction of God's Word. It's not under a tree out in nature. Unless, as my father-in-law likes to say, you've got an elder that's meeting at that tree every single Sunday leading worship. Then you can say that it's worship in nature. I want you to also consider something. David's example of applying normal experiences to the wonder of God. How do we view the world? Jonathan Edwards used to study spiders Spiders, and how they made their webs. And the greatest sermon that was ever preached on American soil, guess what is used throughout the whole entire sermon? The picture of God's wrath hanging someone over the gates of hell like a web held by a spider. We contemplate God in His perfect revelation, in His creation of a special revelation. Do we contemplate of God and His promises, of God's past providences in our life? All of those things are expressed here in David's life when he says, When I remember, I meditate. But what we see here is there is an intentional action on David's part. Therefore, there must be an intentional action on our part. Where do we begin? Very practically. Well, you could say simply reading the Scriptures. You could say attending worship. You could say going to Bible studies. Those would be all wonderful means 
of this as part of our life, without which we're not living the Christian life. I would encourage you as you look upon God's Word, particularly the Psalms, you see the richness of theology. You see the richness of God's self-revelation and our response to it. Consider a work of theology to read. If you don't like reading, you don't have to look at Calvin's Institutes and say, I'm going to read that whole book in a year though you would benefit from it. But perhaps you take one of the saints that have preceded us and read a tiny bit and reflect upon what others gifted with the Holy Spirit have said about God. Even if we don't like to work, read, we can do that. And what we've seen from David is that this actually takes what? Effort. So there's a call for effort here on our part. There's a call for us to actually take this seriously. These are the means that God used in David's life for him to say things like, I thirst after God. I yearn after God. And there's one final thing in this. I think is so true with David's life all the time, I mean, throughout these psalms is this, is that difficult times led David to contemplate God. He says in verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It doesn't get more desperate than having no water, as we've already acknowledged. It's in that point that he speaks of this great contemplation and meditation of God when it's in a difficult time. I think if David was here with us, he would say this, don't waste difficult times in your life. Don't waste the struggle. Don't throw away the suffering. But it's God's means of drawing you close to contemplate His glory. Just as David says, I looked towards the tabernacle and saw His glory. Listen, if we've seen Christ, we have seen the one who tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen His glory. Contemplate Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed yourself to us by your word and that your spirit has opened our eyes to see things more glorious, to understand things beyond us, uh, that we have seen and you have revealed your incomprehensible nature. How could we not desire to worship you? How could we not desire to praise you, our sovereign God? Father, we pray your grace upon us. We pray your grace would drive us to contemplation and to meditation upon your word. We pray that by your grace we would have a greater desire, that you would give us the desires of our heart, and that would be you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.